This one's called All Our Groundkeepers. When you dematerialized, I ached to catch a glimpse of your back. They used to say this is all we could see of you, that your presence was so truly overwhelming, nothing could look upon you and live. But I saw you once there in the garden. Your breasts were full of a train, which was all the overwhelming I needed to know your combustion was about more than just being God. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your rhyming couplet, Dean Detloff, complete with alliteration. <laughs> and I am the personification of iambic pentameter, Matt Vernico. <laughs> <laughs> All five parts are with us today. <laughs> uh, and uh, who you heard in the beginning was Tegan Steele Fisher reading a poem from their book Apostolate, a really fantastic collection of poems uh, that we got a chance to read in the last week. So we've been talking about poetry a little bit in this arc, trying to read a couple of poets like Ernesto Cardinal and Joe Wallace, but we thought it would be important to hear from an actual poet who's writing real-life poetry and dealing with some similar themes that we talk about on this show in some really creative and fascinating and challenging and provocative ways. Uh, it's a great book, and it's also something that you should definitely pick up and buy. Um, the work is is good, like it is just a, a really neat, creative uh, piece of writing. But also, uh, Tegan did a really brave thing by publishing it all by themselves, and uh, you should support those kinds of efforts in the world. Yeah, totally. So you can get the book um, at a Gumroad website that we have linked in our uh, show notes. So go ahead and check it out there. Um, don't buy it on Amazon, buy it on Gumroad. So that's, <laughs> that's the big takeaway. <laughs> yeah. And if you want a print copy, you can also, uh, order one at the email address that's listed in our show notes as well. So the Gumroad link will take you to a, a PDF, but you can get a print copy if you want. Cool. So let's go to Tegan. Thanks for coming on the show, Tegan. Uh, whenever we have a guest author, we ask them to give a little bit of an elevator pitch for their book or their essay or whatever. And the title of uh, Apostolate or Apostate, I guess we'll ask you to say a little bit more about that in a minute, uh, is already really interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about what the book is about and, you know, what made you write it? What are you trying to explore with it? Um, and yeah, how do you even uh, pronounce the title of it? <laughs> um, I, I pronounce it Apostolate. Um, so yeah, it's sort of a mashup of the word apostate and apostle as listeners may have already guessed. Um, but yeah, I, I wrote it. It's a series of poems or anti-poems that were written um, as a space for political and spiritual meditation for both myself and other people. Um, and I did primarily write this for myself, so I'm just going to put that out there from the get-go. But it is a loosely theopoetic poetic work. Um, I did study theology in undergrad, so I have a little bit of a background in, in theology, but I don't necessarily want it to be understood as theopoetics proper. Um, so it does deal with theopoetic theological concepts, but um, poetry is, is the medium for meditating on those things. Um, and the book itself is concerning itself with particular manifestations of Christ of fascism, um, specifically as they're understood through chi a child or children, um, and my own experience largely. Um, and then it's also written kind of out of my own struggle of consciously leaving Protestant Christianity. So in a lot of ways, it deals with my psychological or material reasons for apostatizing, um, as well as some of the patterns I have seen in other apostates that I know. Um, and I, it, it's titled Apostolate because I wanted to juxtapose the figure of the apostle and the apostate and maybe suggest that at some points in history, they've been a lot closer than perhaps some people would like to think. Um, I wanted to explore ideas around how ideological conceptions of God actually function materially in Protestantism in the United States. And lastly, I wrote it because I was depressed. Um, this is like a very real, real reason as to why I wrote this work. Um, the trauma of evangelicalism and Protestant theologies was really deep for me, and it absorbed my whole person for 22 years, and, and so much so that I ended up studying theology. Um, 
So a lot of this work is actually just a lot of half-baked thoughts that I had when I was uh, trying to deal with things in my early 20s. Um, and a lot of them were little snippets that I kind of pulled together into new work. And some of it is newer work that is a little bit more indicative of where I'd like to head um, with my, my poetry specifically. Um, but yeah, I, I wrote it because I wanted to share it with my friends who have also been through religious trauma and because I wanted to kind of get this stuff out of me so I could move on to hopefully some different work. Dang, that is very neat. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I love the word <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, something that comes out in a lot of these uh, different pieces in your book are, are these like different voices that you kind of formulate. Um, in the end of your book, uh, there's like a, a note afterward that you kind of lay out some of them more explicitly, but I think they come through, uh, at different places in the text. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about the, the voices and perspectives behind some of your work and like, um, what they're doing and how they kind of work poetically? Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of the voices I mention are just different things I've like literally heard <laughs> or, um, felt in churches or Christian spaces over the years. So a lot of that was just me kind of um, taking phrases or um, things that I've heard in sermons and kind of running with it in a creative way. Um, and often things that were really effed up. So um, yeah, I mean, God, God was presented to me and a lot of other people like me in ways um that were multifaceted. So, you know, either he was an altruistic carpenter or he was a transcendent all seeing eye, but, um, it always seemed to me f that we never were getting it right. And so I think that's probably why I was a Christian for so long, um, because I was trying to understand who or what God or Jesus was actually, um, if anything, but yeah, the voices kind of work as a way to engage, with how people think in Christian churches and specifically elder roles um, or leadership roles. So <laughs> I, I've been a part of a lot of Christian leadership over the years. Um, and like I said, I went to school and studied theology and I was planning on becoming either a chaplain or a youth minister. Um, but since that didn't happen, <laughs> I, I just spent a lot of time um, learning about the motivations behind seemingly good things that were actually pretty terrible while, while I was in those spaces. And I think a part of me wanted to expose the, the evil behind how people interact with one another in those settings that are supposed to be supposedly very healing and good. Um, so yeah, I, I bring out a lot of different voices. I bring out um, voices of state power and I bring out um, voices of Jesus and um even friends that I've had or like imaginary conversations I've had with the Christological figure of Jesus in the past. Um, and they are primarily working as, as meditation or like um, thought prayer points, I guess I want to say. So um, in a lot of ways, it's just me sort of uh, talking to myself and or these, these figures that I, I myself have interacted with in, in so many ways in the past. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, it's really interesting to read those reflections from the outside, I guess, you know, as somebody who isn't uh, you <laughs> uh, reading them, trying to discern like which voices are which and and is there a sort of authorial voice here or, you know, where do you locate, you know, your own voice maybe as a reader identifying with different uh, things that get presented. Um, I think it really works. Uh, I mean, I'm no expert in poetry, but um it's it's really fascinating to read as a kind of meditative device in that sense. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. I overall would hope people read it as meditations, not necessarily something prescriptive, because um, I guess that's the way that I grew up. So I wouldn't want to do that for other people, um, <laughs> you know. So um, I think some of those voices, maybe it can seem kind of ultimate, but it, it might be helpful for the reader to demystify it. Um, a little bit and and just realize that um, the writer is uh, a person speaking out of their own experience um, but also as someone as someone who has a, a theological background that um, you know has thought through a lot of uh, things philosophically and socially in regards to Christianity specifically a lot of the like the phrasing and um you know, idiom that you use to it, it all rings really true. Like there are definitely things I've heard in church as well. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, the, yeah, I don't know, just the realness of it definitely comes through. 
Um, well, one of them that you noted, particularly uh, in the author's note, is the voice of the oppressor. Uh, you you kind of describe it as an angry and power-hungry god linked with state power. Um, that's a pretty powerful mashup of ideas and figures, um, and definitely one that Christians ought to think about a lot. So um, I guess, where does that come from? How did you develop that voice particularly? Are there like specific life examples or theological like positions or, you know, how, how did this juxtaposition of God and like state sort of come together for you? Yeah, um, I read that. Yeah, I was reading through that question and I was like, oh, yeah, of course they would pick up on that. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I... I guess I want to say that I'm not trying to say something definitive in some sort of ultimate theological sense. Um, I'm trying to describe or meditate on different kinds of relationships that are operative in order to create a space for poetic meditation, um, specifically concerning the relationship between Christianity and the state. And I could go into my own political theology if there isn't even is such a thing, but <laughs> for the purpose of this work, I left a lot of things open for readers to reflect on. So the part that you're mentioning in the author's note, I wanted to make it clear that regardless of people's ideas about the quote, real God, um, the materially functioning God uh, actually supports a lot of state violence. Um, and I guess in terms of like an angry God, I'm thinking of resentment and punishment Um and you're right that power hungry is a strong term. But since I'm not a Christian, I think of God figures in Christianity at this point in human history as functionally being justification for a lot of state violence, um, especially violence against Christianity's others. And one of the things I've been developing in my own work um, is understanding how Christianity at large might be responsible for the um, the Holocaust and as well as acts of anti-Semitism globally, and particular how forms of anti-Semitism anti might be parallel to anti-queerness and anti-Blackness. Um, and I guess it's important to say that I'm pretty strongly influenced by Dorothy Sewell and her thoughts around Christofascism, so that's where a lot of where that has come from as well. And... Um, I don't I don't think that there's a way around acknowledging Christianity's and dealing with Christianity's relationship to global capitalism and colonization and imperialism at this point in, in history. So I wanted to play around with um, why that might be so. And I'm I'm really just trying to make sense of the problem. There's no like ulterior motive other than that. Like I, I really am I'm trying to understand my own um, physical and uh spiritual location in relationship to human history. And I think that Christianity has a lot of really compelling political and aesthetic imagery, such as in liberation theology. So um, in the recent past, I've been trying to make sense of how liberation theology can come out of such a totalizing force that has had really terrible ramifications through human history, like genocide and witch hunts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, that bizarre ambiguity uh in that faith is what we're all about for sure on this podcast um and i think that's what makes your poems at least so uh interesting one of the things that was especially interesting was uh trying to see the person of jesus or the christological figure as you said earlier um maybe two different people uh, or two different poetic typological people uh i don't know um but seeing them show up uh in different poems was really fascinating especially in light of you know that uh that strange role of christianity as a an oppressive force um could you maybe talk a little bit about uh how jesus shows up in these poems um yeah uh i don't mean to like suggest that uh <laughs> jesus is the the ultimate secret reason by any stretch <laughs> but it's just sort of like interesting to uh see that figure show up in this really complicated uh kind of web of relationships that you explore yeah <laughs> Yeah, I am. Um, I okay. I I was really just trying to. Okay, so part of my background is in evangelicalism, you know. So, um, I in the past have had my own relationship, so to speak, with the character of Jesus, my own character of Jesus, if you want to say it that way. Um, and so I was bringing some elements of that um, relationship into parts of different poems, but. I was also trying to just humanize Jesus, but in like a satirical way. So um, I guess to some that might be seen, be seen as kind of profane, but I think it's actually more profane um, 
the ways in which Jesus's are used globally and what that does not only to the human person, but to politics. So my work with Jesus is kind of working through a a lower case D dialectic of Jesus um, as a fellow sufferer who understands, um, but also Jesus is an image of domination, domination throughout human history. And I don't, I don't think that people need to endure their suffering. And I guess I see Jesus as being used as a tool to justify people's suffering, especially women and people who have been enslaved or have had their country violently taken over by Christian colonizers. So I played with those two images quite a bit. Um, the Jesus who understands and the Jesus who is used as, as justification for harm. I think that's a really cool dialectic to lay out. Um, it, it makes for some like very provocative ideas. And I think it's, I mean, helpful for kind of mapping the ways that, yeah, just like you said, Christianity does play a part in um global capitalism and also the colonization of the world historically. Um, well, maybe in light of all of that, would you, um, would you read a poem for us? Sure. I will read a poem for you. This one is called, uh, there aren't really any hills to die on anymore. Sorry, Jesus. <clears throat> if you cannot bear blood, then turn away from the blood and turn to the blood and away from the blood. Goddamn become a body without blood not bleeding. Dust only, sands air, sands water, sands sky. If you cannot bear blood, turn a back and not a cheek. Turn a whisper into a shout. Turn a song into elegy. Stop bothering us. Stop yelling so loud. Stop turning your songs into elegy. Start turning your water into wine. Stop mourning. God damn it, stop mourning. Fuck, I do not know what to do with all your fucking feelings. Get over yourself. Get over it. I mean it. Listen. We do not exist to help you out here. I see you don't have shoes, but I will put you in the river of healing. They say mud can do miracles. They say mud can give you new eyes. I will make you a mud pie. I make the best mud pies. Even with the larvae, they are the best. And you can eat with my pigs. You can eat from the river, but must bring me some trout. Eat the river, eat the water. Eat water, eat locusts, eat air. Do not let the water eat you. Do not let the plagues deceive you. You are stronger than this. Buck up. I know you need new muscles, but I do not have muscle to give. Only spirit, only flesh. It is corrupt, but I'll tell you what, it gets it done. This house is safe. We are a safe house. What a house, but show some respect. When you bend over, I can see straight down to your belly button. When you wear that, I cannot control myself. When you wear that skin out, I cannot help myself. I cannot help myself. What? You hate blood? Well, I love it. Let's have a blood pact. A funny little blood pact. A funny little cut in the skin, the side, the gut, the hands. A crown of fig branches toking it up to the Godhead. Thanks. Uh, it's great to hear you read a poem in your own voice. Uh, I mean, the, the way that you read it is kind of different than when you're reading it silently or reading it to yourself out loud as a reader. Um, and I think just kind of hearing, I don't know, the emphasis or the sort of flow of the text really brings some of those themes to life in a different way. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's always different to hear a poem read by a poet. I think, uh, it, uh, you know, language comes out of our bodies. So it's, I understand why you might feel that way, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, maybe we could uh, talk a little bit. We're going to ask you to read another poem later on. Uh, but before we get there, maybe we could talk a bit about your poetic influences. Um, somebody that I was recently watching videos reading uh, of, of a poet reading his poetry was Ernesto Cardinal, who shows up in your book as an, uh, an epigraph. Um, Adrian Rich is also, and you have a bit of her is an epigraph as well. And then there are some characters who show up uh, throughout the text too. Um, so maybe who are some poets that inform your your own work and how? What do you draw from them or what do they do for you? Or uh, yeah, what are you kind of getting from them uh, as you think about your own poetic work? Yeah, I love um, Ernesto Cardinal. I'm just going to say that I love him so very much. Um, I really, really, really want to send him a letter. I'm probably going to try and do that sometime this summer. Um, but I didn't actually find him until last spring. So I was already halfway through writing Apostolate. Um, so I guess the first people that were influencing this work in particular um, 
let's see. First of all, it was Dorothy Soul as well, um, which I know you know about. <laughs> and she was the first person I found in undergraduate school who was doing, um, I guess, theopoetic work and specifically theopoetic work that was trying to take responsibility for its tradition. Um, and so she, she really deeply influenced me kind of at a younger age because in all of her work, I was seeing her trying to take responsibility for her location as a German Protestant during the Holocaust. And, um, I, I guess I, I saw a little bit of myself in that. Um, and then, you know, you picked up on Adrienne Rich cause she's in my epigraph, but her work is a little bit more, I guess, um, she she influences my form and my thoughts around poetics generally more from a literary perspective. Um, although she is um, someone who grew up in a household that was influenced both by Christianity and by Judaism. And so she does have um, some tenets of, of thinking through religious um, and philosophical ideas. Um, and she and, and Dorothy Soul, I guess together, kind of complete my feminist influence on my on my work up to date up to this date um but adrian is a little bit more i guess i guess i was really taken with the way that she was able to take um a simple uh moment in her life and translate it for a reader so that they could um latch on to it in a in a certain way visually, um, by reading. Um, I'm also interested, um, very interested in Audre Lorde, although I haven't studied her quite as much. Her relationship with Adrian Rich is really fascinating to me. And I, I, um, plan to do a little bit more research into her work moving forward, but, um, yeah, I love them together. They're, they were really good friends. And so it's fun to read some of their interviews that they did to each other. Um, and how they were thinking of poetics and um, politics together uh, when they were writing. And then I guess Cardinal specifically, I actually just did a, a podcast with um, the Marxist Poetry Podcast about him. But when I found him last year, it was um, kind of like, this is how someone um, fuses their their politics and their spiritual slash religious convictions um, and their their location as an artist altogether. And he was really, and has been very in influential for me in that way. Um, I think that he does a really amazing job of writing for kids of the future, which he's quoted as saying um, he wanted to do. And so I guess I'm one of those kids, but <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's really amazing. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's a good example maybe of apostolate in the sense that he's, you know, um, a religious person who gets kind of shoved off to the margins, um, but still is pretty religious in some interesting ways. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I have a lot of thoughts about him, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if you send him a letter, uh, you can ask him and tell him that we say hi. Um, I will tell him. <laughs> yeah. <great. laughs> Um, well, thematically, you draw from a few different sort of theoretical and political traditions. Um, at the end, you specifically mention ecofeminisms, queer studies, and the Marxist critique of capital, the Black radical tradition, and theologies of liberation. Could you walk us through how some of those influences um, work and how they come to bear on some of your uh, poetry? Um, yeah. So, like I mentioned earlier, I, this whole work was just me trying to understand um, you know, kind of what had happened to me um, from a trauma perspective in the first 22 years of my life, but then also trying to understand global politics and um, how my own trauma might relate to um, uh, political strongholds. So when I was in undergraduate school, I was trying to, I was just trying to start working through that. And I found um, Rosemary Radford Ruther, who's an ecofeminist the theologian, and she kind of helped me break out of, I guess, some of the, the, the ways that I had been thinking that weren't quite as materialist and um, kind of gave me permission to start thinking about how um, people exist in ecological webs. And um, 
I also lived in South Africa um, during 2011 for about four months. I was studying abroad there. And my experience there really did change a lot of things for me and kind of introduced me to some of the the reasons for looking to the black radical tradition for, for understanding. Um, and so I obviously was, I don't know, I was like 19 years old in 2011. So I didn't know anything about the world. And, um, when I was there, I started seeing a lot of parallels between, you know, apartheid in South Africa and then the United States history of um, settler colonization. And so that kind of led me to having a lot of questions as to why my own country functioned the way that it did. Um, and so I, I found myself reading, you know, people like Angela Davis and um, some other abolitionists and James Baldwin and um, even James Cone and a couple other people that, you know, started to shape my political consciousness about um, black radicalism. Um, and in addition to that, I, I guess as, as far as queer studies go, like I'm queer. <laughs> and so that's just sort of a given for me. I, I, started realizing I was queer about four years ago. So it's actually pretty recent. And um, I needed to work some of that out in relationship to how I'd been oppressed by Christianity to the point that I didn't know that about myself. Um, so a lot of that comes out in, in apostolate. Um, and then with the Marxist critique of capital, I, I, my family is construction workers on my dad's side, and I've grown up around a lot of blue collar workers. Um, and I have worked in the restaurant industry for 10 plus years. And so when I, I started realizing how I was being harmed in those spaces, um, I was becoming more conscious of it after I got married in 2015 and I was talking to my partner about it and, um, he was like, you've read Marx, right? And I, I was like, yeah, I've read Marx. And he's like, you know, you're talking about surplus value. Cause I was talking about wage theft. And I was like, oh, I guess I am. And I, so then I started going back and reading more Marx and um, realized that a lot of things that I had experienced had already been written about. Um, yeah. And then, you know, in terms of theologies of liberation, I've said this other places, but um, liberation theology is the last thing that I uh, interacted with in a confessional way before I apostatized. And so I guess it was maybe my last ditch effort to, to save myself and Christianity somehow, but I actually am still really interested in liberation theology and um, I'm pretty strongly influenced by some liberation theologians still, um, even as I'm not confessional. So that's how they influenced my poetry. And, and these influences are ongoing. Like I am no, in no way a master of any of these topics. I just, um, I've had some life experiences that have drawn me to them in so many ways. And so I'm committed to, to continuing down the rabbit hole, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks. I feel like, uh, I should say thanks in particular for dealing with all of our, um, attempts to like race to the end of your book, kind of, uh, <laughs> to sort of force you to do, we're kind of making you do like an autopsy of, the, of this poetry, uh, <laughs> in a way that might not be so fair. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad it doesn't seem so bad. Um, <laughs> we're asking some okay good it feels so I don't know we're kind of like trying to explain to ourselves how poetry works so uh I guess Matt and I both come from like a more I don't know <laughs> prose influence background I'll put it that way um well maybe to kind of get back into the the like the form or or poetry uh proper you mentioned earlier that poetry functions as this really unique uh medium for you to explore all this stuff and that's kind of interesting to us um, we'll ask you more about that in a minute, but a, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Cardinal's poetic style and he calls it exteriorismo. Um, so for folks who haven't heard, it's a kind of documentary style of poetry that draws from different things in the poet's immediate surroundings or like, you know, advertisements or, uh, everyday life. And it's, it's meant to be understood. Um, that's how Cardinal says it anyway. Uh, some of your poems seem to work with that kind of influence or that kind of style. And then other ones are doing something very different. Um, 
very, I don't know, like a little bit more experimental or avant-garde. Um, do you have maybe a, a particular style of poetry that you like to work with? Are you borrowing from a number of styles? Uh, how does that side sort of play into these um, things that you're exploring? Yeah, I'm truthfully still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> so I guess I don't really see myself in the documentary style so much as Cardinal because I think in his work, he's definitely trying to like create for the reader specific film shots. Like when you read um, Zero Hour, for instance, I don't know if you've read that. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's probably the best work to start with in his. And he, he kind of jumps from scene to scene and shot to shot. And he does these little descriptive moments where like the reader is able to kind of paint like a visual image in their head. Um, so like when you read that for me, as someone who's never been to Nicaragua, I was like envisioning all, all these things about what Nicaragua might look like from his perspective. I don't necessarily see myself doing that kind of work, although I would like to in the future. Um, I think that I, moreover, I'm doing like a particular kind of anti-poetry almost, which I didn't really set out to do, but I think it happened in a couple places where, um, it, I'm breaking with form a lot. Like I do have a little bit of background in, in poetic form, but personally I, I really hate it. And I know a lot of other poets that do as well. I just, um, was dealing with like ideas and then I was, um, trying to create little scenes for people or like, um, you know, bring them into my own imagination, I guess. Um, specifically in, in, in poems like um, the ones where I, I'm going back in time and talking with some biblical figures or something. Um, I think that's something I'd like to play with more in the future, but I didn't get to do it quite as deeply as I wanted to in apostolate. Um, but in terms of some form, I was pretty influenced by Adrienne Rich's, you know, she splits up a lot of her poems. So she does like um, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, et cetera, or like number one, number two, number three. And she lines them all underneath each header. And that's something that I, I mean, I had been reading a lot of her work um, when I was editing this. So I think, I think it came out a lot more than I probably anticipated, but I think it works for this because I was um, juxtaposing a couple different kinds of thoughts um, against each other to, to bring out um, hopefully a specific end in some way. So those are my thoughts around form. I, I don't really care about it, but I, I will learn about it as I move forward in, in poetry. I'm actually pretty new to, um, to publishing in general. So I've done a, a more theoretical work and I'm a visual artist. So um, I've always written poetry, but I've never done it publicly in this way, I guess. Um, it's always just been for myself. And, it, you know, in a lot of ways, this book was for myself, too, but it was different because I actually published it. So, um, Well, that's really cool. Uh, the The explanation of form and that you don't really care about it <laughs> or that you, you're drawing it from, you know, other folks who um, play with it in really particular ways is helpful. Um, Dean and I, yeah, like we've been saying, um, we're not we're not even very familiar readers of poetry. Um, and last week we did this episode about this um, really weird, um, sorry, that weird's a, probably the wrong word, uh, a, a Canadian Christian communist poet who thought everything had to rhyme. So the the lack of rhyme, the being being more playful and interesting with form, uh, I'm, I'm welcoming it so greatly right now. Um, That's so interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, his name was Joe Wallace. He's a weird, a weird guy. Um, I shouldn't just keep saying he's weird. That's probably mean. Um, but whatever. You know, I actually. Sorry, I'm going to derail for a second. I oh, talked about the word weird with my therapist today, and she, <laughs> I, you know, I've told her I've learned to embrace it. So I, I feel like it can be an insult. Um, but you know, people can also <laughs> feel like it's a good thing too. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Well, um, maybe <laughs> you can save me from the weird hole that I've dug myself into, and uh, you could read another poem. Sure. Um, I, I had a hard time picking picking poems, just so you know, but I'm going to read the ones that I personally uh, I really like. Um, okay, this one's called, What If There's No Forgiveness for Eating Surplus Value? 
The irony of debt is giving one's body over to earn that capital by which one can obtain food to sustain one's body. The irony of food is that extraction of my labor by which my food has been taken from me. The irony of that taking is that which sustains it is forgiveness. The irony of forgiveness is that to receive it, one must be in debt. One becomes indebted by borrowing or by stealing. So who must be in debt to whom? The irony of salvation is giving oneself over to obtain that grace by which one can be forgiven for being a body in order to become disembodied and thus saved. The irony of the bread of life is that extraction by which my breaded body becomes taken from me. The irony of that taking is that which sustains it is forgiveness. The irony of forgiveness is that to receive it, one must be in debt. One becomes indebted by borrowing or by stealing. So who must be saved from what? Thanks. I'm glad you read that one. Um, I really keyed into that poem as well for a number of reasons. I mean, <laughs> the Marxist political economy is great. Uh, maybe uh, maybe I came for that, but I definitely stayed for the uh, Christian political economy, <laughs> if you want to put it that way <laughs> in the end. Uh, yeah, so that's fantastic. Um, so I mentioned a moment ago, I was going to ask you a question about poetry as a medium. So I guess I'm going to deliver on that now, <laughs> on that debt. Um, so why do you think poetry is an important or, or interesting or unique medium? Like what's different about writing a poem about this, about these themes, um, let's say about surplus value and, you know, all the weird things that Christianity makes you think um, together, rather than saying that in like a theology paper or in a novel or a play or something. Um, the first thing that came to mind when I was thinking through this was that poet poetry is the medium and it's not really like a question of either or, like one is better in value or something. Like, Poetry is a, a really useful way to think through our immediate sensory observations and um, to dream of a world that can be otherwise. And I guess it's not only like a way to dream, but it's kind of an impetus to act on our own confusions and our material realities. So I, I love me. Um, I love poetry as a medium because while I'm an artist in other areas like um, visual art and whatnot, I I am drawn to poetry in the sense that I can play with an idea without committing to it, I guess. Um, and maybe that seems kind of bad to someone who reads a lot of theory, but I think it actually is really helpful because I think that we can get really stuck and, and hung up on, um, you know, ideological differences and um, poetry can be, a helpful way for us to break out of those tendencies towards dogmatism. And I, I appreciate that about this medium. And I also know that poetry um, is just something that kind of saved my life. I mean, I couldn't have thought through various things that I've gone through um, throughout my tenure as a human being um, without, without poetry, because it, kind of gives a sense of like, oh, like someone else thinks or feels that way. And I don't think that other mediums can deliver that, that sense in quite the same way. And I think there's a lot we don't know about how language functions, but I think that what we do know is that um, we can move each other by the sounds of our voice and also by um, communicating some sort of intent and some sort of um, idea about the way things are, even if they're wrong, you know, like, I'm not, I, I think that we can identify when things are wrong and we, when we see them written down, um, in ways that maybe we can't when someone is just kind of trying to win you over to their side. I think poetry is like, um, an invitation to the mind of another person, um, but not just their mind. I mean, their their whole person can be brought into into poetry in a way that I don't think any other medium really has the capacity to to usher. Because I can speak this poem to you like I just did, um, and it can have a different sort of impact upon your body by hearing my voice um, ringing in your ears than any other medium can, um, except maybe music. But you know, this that's a whole other conversation, I guess. <laughs> but yeah. Those are my those are my thoughts around poetry as a medium. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you've mentioned a few times how this is 
you know, a book that's kind of like a, you know, meditations, like observations, trying to figure out how the world works and, you know, how, how to kind of come to come to deal with the things that have happened to you. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Um, but how, how do you move from like observation um, or meditation to poem? Like, how do you know, I don't know what's going to work or, or how do you knit some of these ideas together? I guess the, the big question here is like, what's this like creative process like for you? Um, how does a poem become a poem? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm sure for people who maybe, you know, haven't read poetry too much um, or, or are just starting to embark on the, the, the learning of different kinds of poetry. So it's probably interesting because you, you know, are reading it and you're like, wow, how did they stitch the sentence together or something? Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess I, I keep like a running list of notes on my phone. I think a lot of people do that for various things, but I have quite a few and I just come like, I have phrases that come into my head when I'm like driving down the road a lot or like, a lot of my phrases come up when I'm at work and I'm just like really bored or I'm angry at, you know, uh, getting chipped on a tip or something. And so, um, I, I write down, you know, things that I'm thinking in that moment and then it either gets turned into a poem or it doesn't. And I mean, you obviously have to read a lot to be able to write. And so I, or you don't, and, you know, there's a lot of different ideas about that, but in terms of, of poetry for me, um, a lot of my poems have just been written, like taking those phrases that I write throughout the day and sitting on my back porch and thinking about them. Um, and I don't really have a process other than that. Like I, that's pretty much it. Like sometimes I'm just like going throughout my day and then all of a sudden something will pop into my head and I know I have to write it down and then I, I can decide if I want to develop it into something else or not. Um, but you know, for me, Poetry is also a conversation with myself, um, and it's an ongoing one, which is why I write so much. And a lot of those things aren't publishable, um, but some of them maybe can be. Um, so yeah, I, in terms of like revisioning, like revising, revisioning, wow, I can't even speak. Um, in terms of like <laughs> revising or doing edits or something, like this, this book, Apostolate, was the only thing I've ever asked specifically for for critical help on um so i actually hired an editor because i i self-published um her name is maria baller she's amazing and she um also studied theology and is a poet so we kind of found each other randomly on twitter and um she d gave me like so much helpful feedback on on different things that i had questions about in regards to my own work and so um she was invaluable in, in me completing this project. But um, before that, I haven't really gotten a ton of feedback on my work, except in um, different English classes that I've had. And usually I just kind of read a poem, like now, because I, I live with my partner now, um, I like read a poem to him and I ask him what he thinks about it. And if it strikes something in him, then I know I should keep going with it. I don't always trust his judgment. Sometimes he thinks it's really good and I don't think it is. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I will read something aloud to someone else that I trust. And that way I can kind of figure out what I'm actually trying to say. And so that's another way that I, I start to edit. Um, Cause I can't just sit down and edit it like a paper, you know, like I've written plenty of papers in my life and I don't read those out loud to my friends. Um, you know, so with poetry, it's a little bit different. You can, you can start to see what kind of words and images are, are um, maybe affecting other people and run with those. And, and that's how, you know, you're doing well is when other people kind of pick up on it. Or if you yourself just like love whatever it is you're writing, like there's plenty of poems I will never share with people that are, are just for me that I really love. So. Yeah. I'm always uh, reading Matt, my papers, just to see how he lights up <laughs> um, <laughs> the turns of the argument, you know? Um, yeah, no, that's really fascinating to me. I mean, uh, as a person who's trying to, I've made 2020 the year of poetry in my life. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find the ones I like. I'm gonna get rid of the ones I don't, and maybe I'll write one or two. And it just strikes me, uh, trying to come at it in this way, that poetry is such a 
interesting, vulnerable kind of medium. Like I, uh, you know, I, I, I'll give a paper at a conference, but the thought of like reading a poem out loud to a person I actually know, um, is terrifying to me, I guess, for some reason in a way that like writing a, an argument isn't, or, um, even handing something over to an editor or something like that. So I guess I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more about that side of it. Like, so you have, you've got these poems that you, you know, are just for you, these poems that, uh, you're kind of workshopping and then of course poems that sort of finally make it make the cut into a, a book that you feel, you know, this belongs here or something. Um, could you maybe say a little bit about that? Like what's the relationship between uh, articulating these, these kind of um, maybe in some cases intimate thoughts or maybe in other cases, just sort of uh, free floating or, or experimental sorts of thoughts. Um, you know, what does that look like to negotiate that uh, in the process of just making poetry? Um, I think I'm understanding your question correctly and, and that you're asking, what does it look like to decide whether or not something is worth sharing with people? Is that what you're asking? I guess that and, and, and what is that experience like? I guess that's what I mean. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of dancing around my own question, I guess, but whatever you say will be great. <laughs> I don't know about that. I, well, <laughs> um, yeah, honestly, the process of publishing this, especially because I was self-publishing, was really vulnerable, like you said. Like, um, I wasn't really sure if this was a good book or not when I published it. <laughs> I, I wrote it, and I was like, 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 like I don't really know uh, if this is going to be something people want to read. And then I just decided I didn't care if people wanted to read it. Um, so I guess that's how that process went. <laughs> like, I just, I kind of, was like, I wrote this for myself, you know, and I knew that the whole time. Um, just specifically because I was writing out of like a really depressive state and I, I knew that I was needing to process some things um, in regards to religious trauma. So um, I, I went through a lot of doubt, doubting myself before I published this. I, I worried about potentially harming people um, like a lot. I, I, heavily heavily edited for content in regards to some things that I've experienced like I cut a lot of poems before I published this um that don't need to see the light of day because they were just me processing my own relationship to white supremacy for instance or um I don't know like a lot of things in regards to queerness that maybe I didn't want to share with the public eye um and so yeah it, it was hard deciding to actually publish because I was on this journey um, from the beginning of 2018 until, I guess, like four or five months ago. And um, I, I had decided to publish only because I knew I wouldn't finish it if I didn't decide to. <laughs> so I, I figured out how to self-publish on my own. And I, I got a lot of advice from poets that I love you know, or respect or that I have had connections from in the past that told me not to independently publish because the publishing industry kind of looks down on it. And I just kind of was like, I don't really care um, about that. And I actually, you know, I'm connected to a lot of poets who do um, anti-press work and anti-capitalist publishing. And so I, I have tried to learn as much from them as I can and, and seize my own means of production, so to speak, in terms of uh, independently publishing. Um, and I think a lot more people are going to start doing that. And I, I hope they do because the, the publishing industry is whack. But um, I don't even know what your question was to start off with. I just went off on a tangent. Um, it's, good. it's a good tangent. It's a good. Okay, <laughs> cool. Well, um, I'm glad that you decided to self-publish it. It's a really cool book. Um, I don't, again, I don't know anything about poetry, but I really loved reading this and it was really an engaging experience. And I don't know, made me think about my own life and experience with Christianity all over again, uh, for better and for worse sometimes. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. Uh, it's a good and reflective task. Um, well, I don't know. How can people buy your book? Sure. Yeah. Um, they can follow me on Twitter and I have a link there for my Gumroad account where I'm selling a donation based PDF. Um, I just put that up because I wanted it to be accessible for people um, and people shouldn't have to pay more for things than they want and or need to, um, especially art. Um, so there's a PDF there for people if they want it. And then 
If they want a physical copy, they can email me at takingcarycreative at gmail.com. Um, I'm taking orders for paperbacks right now. I've sold all of my hardbacks, but I should be getting some more in soon. Um, otherwise, they're online other places, but I don't want people to give their money to Amazon. And I'm trying to figure out how to get my book off of Amazon, but my publisher just kind of threw it up there. So mm. it's there for now, but please don't buy it on there. <laughs> That's good. We won't. Uh, and neither <laughs> will any of our listeners. <laughs> cool. Uh, would you send us out, uh, close off this episode with a poem from your book? Sure. That sounds great. Okay. Um, this one is called Mama, I Left Because I Was Convicted. One. Here's the thing about grief they do not tell you. You become mechanistic. Machinations of the mind grow circular, then convulse you into the bed. There are ways grief settles in as an unwanted house guest, making home and your desire to pull away even as you draw close. There is no winning, no catching the ghosts of you, no casting it out on inclement days, denying it a bed and a wet nurse. What happens when your wounds are bound up in time? Do you forfeit your life or grow soundless and endless like the bottom of a harrowing seascape? Two, you look best in graveyards, don't you? They ask quietly as I buy the flowers. I say, yes, I do. Come alive at the close with me. We're all waiting. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Also, if you even like more of what you heard, the po- poetry wise, you can <laughs> buy Tegan's cool book uh, at the link in our bio. Uh, well, nope. <laughs> in the link in our show notes. So check it out. The intro music, as always, is by Amari Armstrong, and the outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week with more poetry. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. What else are you gonna do? Is we kissed in the alley by the Michigan feeder?